Hello and welcome back to the Annotating Arts Education podcast. I'm Gigi, your podcast host, coming to you from the year 2045. For today's episode, I will be in conversation with musician, musicologist, teacher, researcher, leader of a music higher education institute, among many other accolades, Carl Ezeg who attended this year's Footnotes Conference on Annotating the Futures of Arts Education, where our discussion took place. Together, Carl and I will be diving into topics that focus on the form and function of art schools today in 2045, ranging from their place in society to the role entrance exams play to the true meaning of cultural ownership in 2045. So let's jump right into the conversation. Hello, and welcome back to the Footnotes podcast with myself, Gigi. I am thrilled to be currently joined here in the studio by Carl Isag. Hello, Carl. First of all, could you please briefly introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thanks for listening to me. I'm an old man. I was born in 1980. And I spent, dedicated my whole lifetime to music in very different positions. I started as a string player, violinist, and I was doing any kind of music. I was playing in rock bands when I was young. And then I was studying music. I was studying violin. But I found out that sitting in an orchestra was too boring for me. That was at that time possible to earn a living with that. And then I went in teaching and I did also musicology and research and these kind of things. And at the end of my lifetime, I ended up to teach on a higher music education institution and also to be a rector and being manager of also of an association which was, so to say, politically dealing with the interests of higher music education. Now I'm about retiring and I think it's not bad sometimes to look back on your lifetime and I'm happy to share with you my impressions about how the sector has developed and how things have changed. Thank you, Carl. So a person of many layers and talent. So with that in mind, firstly, I would like to begin by asking you what role you think art and art schools play within society today in 2045. I think all in all, you can say that art and creative work is seems to me to be more important than it used to be before. Or I would say rather maybe the role and significance of art and creative work for the functioning and well-being of society has become more obvious and more visible than it has been in the past. All in all, it's my impression that there aren't as many people as there used to be who are seeing art as something that's just nice to have but not really necessary. I've often thought about why that is. This is, of course, a bit of speculation, but I suspect there are mainly two reasons. On the one hand, there is an increasing automation of work processes. Only think about how many people were employed 100 years ago, for example, in agriculture or in production of cars or buildings. And if you today produce a car or you build a house or you bring a ton of potatoes on the market, you only need a small percentage of the stuff hours compared to 50 or 100 years ago. Those processes and also those jobs that have been disappeared in the meantime are essentially 
the stupid and the uncreative jobs. Jobs such as picking up a stone in order to put it down somewhere else. Today, all this is done by machines, robots, and learning computers. But you can also ask the other way around. Which jobs are still done by human beings? And why are they still done by human beings? And of course, these are mostly the non-stupid, the creative jobs, because these jobs couldn't be easily done by machines. Being creative means, above all, being open to face the unexpected and allowing for the unknown in thinking and in acting. Artificial intelligence, for example, cannot do that because AI can calculate all sorts of things, but it cannot distinguish between meaningful and meaningless chaos. In terms of the world of work and jobs, this means that over the years, the percentage of creative jobs in the total number of jobs has steadily increased because only a few of them were replaced by machines. And that, of course, has made the importance of these creative jobs to society more apparent than it used to be. I think that's one of the reasons. And of course, what I just spoke about was more about creative jobs and you might say not yet about artistic jobs or artistic activities in the narrow sense. But the other reason why art is more important or seems to me to be more important than it used to be is because the human factor. In contrast to dance or drama, almost everything in music can now be produced with technical aids, which means you do not need musicians to make a sound recording of a Brahms symphony or a piano piece of Debussy. All you have to do is to access databases And with a bit of experience and musical know-how, you can create your own personal interpretation of the computer. But the audience obviously still needs personalities to identify with. People who embody what is performed and listen to a singer, a DJ, a soloist on stage, whom they applaud and who can communicate with them. This has nothing to do directly with music as a sound art. But people obviously need this form of Identification. Thank you, Carl. And now I'd like to ask you, what role do art schools play within society today in 2045? I think art schools in general and higher arts education institutions in particular have a much broader mandate than they had only 20 years ago. The art HEIs, that's how we say about higher education institutions, no longer only prepare professional musicians or dancers or painters or whatever artists for their jobs, but also people who do not intend to make art their main job, but who might need artistic skills to be able to do their basically non-artistic job. At Music AGIs, we put a lot of emphasis on technique and drill, which sometimes superseded the actual musical aspect. The more this was pushed into the background, and gave more freedom for the experimental, for the creative, for trying out unexpected things. The more studying the arts became more interesting also for people who didn't even want to earn their living with art. But that also meant that the other way around, those who originally wanted to become musicians but ended up in other professions are better prepared nowadays to perform these other professions than they were before. 
I think it can fairly be said that the idea of what the objective or the outcome of a study actually should be has changed a bit. Fit for the job used to mean that you left the higher education institute and could then immediately start your job as a doctor or lawyer or orchestra musician or whatever. Today is more that fit for the job means that a graduate of an HEI is able to independently and flexibly adapt to the requirements of his or her job and also to further develop their skills by their own and to be flexible and open to lifelong learning. I think that art HEIs and the universities of today, at least in some subjects, and this definitely includes the arts, have strengthened their character as laboratories, as open spaces for experimentation, at least compared to how it was in the immediate post-Bologna years, and that's a good development. If I were to speak of the challenges that still need to be solved, I would point out above all that Despite great progress, the world of music HEIs has still not been fully disconnected from the world of the well-educated bourgeois European white Christian middle class. As I said already before, it's a lot better than it was, but it's a very long process that's not yet accomplished. Indeed. And Carl, I'm also interested to speak a little bit about examinations here especially entrance examinations, which give access to higher arts education institutions. How do those differ today from, say, earlier times? I'm glad you're asking this question, because I think this is a very hands-on topic that allows me to underline and explain what really has changed. When I took my entrance examination at a high music education institution, that was in 1998, It was very clear what I was expected to show in the entrance examination. It all started with the fact that, although I played both classical music and rock music in my school days, I had to make a decision once and for all time for one of the two when registering for the entrance examination. I then decided to study violin in the classical department, and in the entrance examination, however, I had to play a very specific repertoire and it was expected to, that I perform it exactly the way the jury thought it would be right. And then there were these music theory tests. It wasn't actually tested whether these young folks understood the musical context, but whether one could describe what they perceived and understood from the music in a very specific, pre-described system. It's like speaking a language fluently but not being able to write it, and then someone says, You don't speak this language. I still remember very clearly when around 2020, the first institutions stopped imposing these entrance examination requirements on the candidate. They didn't stop having entrance examinations, but they stopped using this catalog of requirements. They simply gave each candidate 20 minutes to show what he or she has to offer. It could happen that one of them showed up and presented the soundscapes she had put together herself on her laptop. Another one was juggling with balls and played the trumpet at the same time. Still another played electronic reggae heavy metal on an electric guitar or simply Bach and Rachmaninoff on the grand piano. That was a scandal back then. But that's not all. Even those who supported this development and were willing to promote it said, 
we won't make it. We can't make it. We do not have any reliable criteria that we can agree on to assess whether this was a good or a bad presentation, whether we should take this applicant or not. And moreover, once we have took them, we've taken them, we don't have the teachers who can teach this or that. It took quite a long time for this to really be accepted and established. And there are still special music age EIs that have their entrance examination more or less in the old style. But that's a minority. And only those who are looking exactly for that and want exactly that to happen, they apply there. I think that's absolutely fine, as long as these are the exception. But these open entrance examinations were also the key trigger for many other positive developments. All of a sudden, no one asked the students any longer, do you already manage to copy something that others has already done before you? But they were asked, have you found your own way? The doors of creativity opened up, in my view. In addition, the boundaries between the art disciplines have been rearranged not in the sense of a prescribed transdisciplinarity, but rather in the sense that the work of a musician gives rise to questions whose answers can be found in other disciplines. When it comes to creating a stage performance or video, for example, or being present on the internet, and above all, a new type of teacher has emerged, guides, mentors, collaborating teachers, and peer-to-peer learning and self-directed learning are much more important today than they were when I was young. And would you say these changes in examinations have made for a more equal playing field and perhaps made higher arts education more accessible to more people? Yes, of course it did, because the simple fact that you don't have any prescribed requirements, so to say, to def- it is defined beforehand, what art is or what good art is, the more you make it accessible for, on the one hand for people who have a different understanding of the arts, who might have might be the most creative ones because they come up with their own things, with their own ideas, with their own projects. And also, you access a different layer of society. People who have a different kind of education in an education or also a family background where I would not say Culture or the art is not important, but it's a different way of, of addressing it and also a different way of, of learning it and of teaching it. That's wonderful, Carl. I really uh, think that goes a step beyond as not only making art schools more accessible, but making art as a term or a concept something that's multi-layered and uh, multi-dimensional as opposed to one-size-fits-all. I'm now going to ask you a bit of a tough question. What does cultural ownership mean today in 2045? For me, the notion and the concept of cultural ownership is incredibly exciting because it has gone through a very diverse and sometimes contradictory history over the past 200 years, repeatedly jumping from one extreme to the other. The idea of a cultural identity that is linked to a nation, to a language, or even to a specific type of music, only came up in Europe in the 19th century. And that was exactly the time when the first higher music education institutions were established and conservatoires and music schools emerged as institutions of bourgeois musical life 
that strengthened and multiplied precisely this understanding of cultural identity, even if it was just a construct from the very beginning on. Composers like Tchaikovsky, Dvořák, Mahler, Krieg, Debussy, Bartok, they composed, of course, for an international market and were and still are successful on an international market, but they did it as representatives of their home country, or you could also say of an indigenous culture somehow. As late as in the 1950s, it was considered to be impossible that a black musician would be able to properly perform Mozart, and also that a white musician would be able to be a good jazz performer. Then came a phase of openness and mutual appropriation. In East Asia, masses of symphony orchestras popped up and tried to play all European repertoire in such a way that it sounded as European as possible. On the other end, young European musicians started to play blues and reggae. A lot of music was created that was called world music or crossover at the time. Anything was possible. Everything was allowed. About 30, maybe 35 years ago, new trends popped up under buzzwords such as decolonization, wokeness, and cancel culture. Suddenly, we had to deal again with bans on thinking and with censorship. I think the 20s were really a very difficult time. You might remember only after first Putin and then Donald Trump and Viktor Orban went into exile to North Korea, things started to be more relaxed and easy again. I am very happy that today we have reached a point where everyone can help himself or herself at a global buffet without having to worry about whether you should have a guilty conscience with what you are doing. Nobody speaks of a lack of authenticity anymore when the opera house in Kinshasa staged the magic flute in a way that is completely different from how it is done in Europe. And I also think it's good that they do it without caring about whether they have to call Vienna first and ask if they are allowed to do it and they want to do it. We are in a phase in which cultural identity and cultural ownership are no longer attributed, but everyone defines it for herself and himself, and the others respect this, even if they themselves have a different opinion on it. And that applies not only to culture and arts, but to all areas, whether I'm vegan, diverse, Catholic, Rastafarian, opera lover, or my own avatar. I think this is wonderful. And I'm very happy to still be able to experience that as an old man. I always say that to those who say everything was better in the past. That's rubbish. Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for sharing your time, your expertise, and your wisdom with the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Annotating Arts Education podcast. Join us next time to further explore alternative forms of arts education and to see what other time zone spaces we might just tap into. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Gigi, in 2045. Take care.